Signs of the Southland, Monday, August 23rd, 2021. Mr. Grant, following off of our other uh, episode last week, I heard that you had an opportunity to catch volleyball's second game in action this past weekend. Yeah, it was the uh, first one against real opponents as well. Um, The reason I went in particular is not only because I love providing all of you with wonderful sports content, but it is because it was free and I have not yet bought season tickets. And I don't know if I'm going to or not because of my scheduling weirdness this fall, but I can say a couple things if we would like to dive in with that. Go for it. We need a transition. You need to, if, if you can figure out a segue into our football preview, that's what's coming up later today on tap. If you can figure out a, a cohesive segue to land this plane i'm i'm all for it dang i should have uh i should have saved the season ticket bit for that that would have been natural but in the meantime um they did play five sets at o'keefe i believe that was probably a little bit by design both in terms of like player rotation as well as you know we have this exhibition we might as well do it um Tech out to a early one nothing lead, 25-22. That was mostly starters for both teams. Um, yeah, uh, South Carolina took the next two sets by the same score, 25-22, 25-22. Uh, Tech sailed in the fourth, 25-17. And then, interestingly, they played 25 rather than 15 in the fifth, one 25-22. The big, big Big takeaway here is the fact that your top 25 Yellow Jackets, uh, not that they went to five sets, but the fact that rather than playing a seven, eight woman rotation as they usually do, I believe they saw 15 players, yeah, 15 players uh, take the court uh, at various times. So definitely a lot of different looks, uh, a lot of different experience. And to be quite honest, They spent most of the first set, even when the starters were in, um, feeding Bianca Bertolino. Um, it, that's new, that she's a freshman, she's uh, new to the team. So it's not like it was our studs out there kind of in a, in a real game scenario. It was more getting, getting players live, live reps. Um, Mariana Brambilla did not play. She was assisting with all workouts and uh, warmups though and jumping around on the bench. So I presume that is more of a don't get injured kind of dealio um, than, you know, something else. Again, she didn't play out of the gate. Um, it was either, no, it was two seasons ago, sorry. Now, um, yeah, so, you know, maybe just watching out in, in warmups to make sure uh, that you're not letting uh, one of your better players get injured as she does have a bit of a history of that. So. Um, trying to think what else you weren't there. So I don't know if you have a lot to dive in with, but, um, the other takeaway is holy cow, that gym was packed and the game didn't even matter. Like that, there's no attendance statistic on the site. Um, but 15 minutes before the game, there was, I counted at least 350 people there. And that was at least at least two, probably close to three times as many by the time the end of the first set hit. Um, it, the entire first set, there was just people walking in, walking in. And the students outweighed the, the actual fans by a lot. There was no band, and that whole section down there was pretty full. Um, 
Yeah, no, but I think not having the band hurt the environment at least a little bit because they're really good at the uh, point tech and then cheers and stuff like that. But it was just good to see a bunch of students, probably as many students of probably the last season and a half um, all in the building at once, including a good showing for the exhibition. I've talked a lot. I'm starting to get self-conscious. Uh, do you have any questions, Akshay? Uh, no, because I can't find the statistics for this game on the website or on the NCAA website. So basically this game didn't happen uh, yeah. according to the NCAA. Uh, the, the live stats are still updated with this game's results. So that's what I've been going off of uh, mm. in terms of uh, set results. I was tweeting a little bit from, from the Rumble Seat account, but not a ton. Um, takeaways, since we do not have a ton of um, time to break down stats because we do have to roll into football. Uh, Aaron Moss looking really good. Um, I'd say probably in my preseason uh, favorite for most improved player, just based on what I saw. Um, hopefully everything's all right with Brambia was my other note. And then uh, when Bertolino got comfortable, she was playing pretty well um, after she got settled in a little bit. I think part of that may have been South Carolina may not have had all their starters in anymore, but also it's just getting, getting game reps. Uh, Pimentel played libero defensive specialist for uh, three, four, and five. Um, Drew Nick got into the game for a bit. Uh, Liz Patterson, uh, Isabella D'Amico, Brilliant Morissette. Really, we, we saw. Now you're just naming people. Everything. Now we, you're just we, naming players at this point. We saw, we saw 15 players get in. It's hard to have a takeaway with everything. Um, Michaela Dowd looks, looked very good from both sides. And then uh, Bergman was dangerous as always. So really, really looks like things are shaping up about as expected there. So excited to see that season kickoff. Uh, speaking of season kickoff, great segue, by the way, but I'm about to ruin it. Um, they kick off the year in Orlando at 10 a.m. Eastern versus Penn State on Friday. Ooh, I don't think I can watch that from the office. That's, uh, it's that's... on ACC Network Extra. I will probably have it on. But... Really? They're putting that game on ACC Network Extra, even though it's at UCF. That's very interesting. I mean, it's huh. Georgia Tech versus Penn State. It's the preseason ah. number three in the ACC versus perennial Big Ten power Penn State. I think that has TV viewing potential. This is fair. I'm, I just meant more the, the UCF factor there. But yes. Central Florida. Sure. Let's let's call them by their Christian name. Central Florida. Thank you. Inventors of Space Central Florida. Hotel Manager University Central Florida. Uh, but you know, uh, Central Florida was on the football schedule once upon a time. <sighs> that was a terrible segue. I apologize. I apologize to everyone out there. Um they the were last, on the football schedule last year, in fact. They were on the football schedule last year. That was 2020. This football season is 2021. Let's talk about the 2021 football season at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Mr. Grant, I'm still getting tired of doing the every podcast is someone's first bit because at this point, everyone knows about what football is. We're not really doing anything super, uh, super niche uh, so they know how the sport works. Let's move on to their playing surface. Please tell me about it. Yeah. Um, well, 
if we're talking playing surface, grass really goes back to uh, infinity. But if you're talking about ah, ah, the flats, ah, 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 ah. it does not go back to infinity. Let's get technical here. They had grass between 94 and 19, between 71 and 94. It was AstroTurf. And right now it is again, some sort of Astro or is some sort of turf that's supposed to play like grass for higher maintainability. Wow. This, this is embarrassing for me. I, I was really just going for the metaphor here, but I should know be better. You um, get nothing. You lose, sir. Good day. <laughs> okay, Willie. Um, no, if you want to go back to the very, very, very beginning, uh, Bobby Dodd stadium in, in, in ye old times was a ditch, a Creek flowing from what is roughly Centennial Olympic park. Now North towards Peachtree Creek, uh, just past where 75 and 85 split, uh, this Creek, uh, along with one that headed toward West campus make up the majority of what is now the North and East sides of campus in 1885, uh, when Tech purchased the land uh, to build Georgia Tech, what they're really going for was the hill next to it. That is the, uh, the origin of the phrase, the hill, to describe the administration. And then the flats uh, was really just a ravine crossed by North Avenue on the giant earthen, earthen viaduct. But uh, in about 1905, uh, a guy called John Heisman uh, had Some been dork. for about a year. Some yes. dork named John Heisman some theater nerd named John Heisman um, had decided that, you know, it'd be really great if his football team could practice on campus. Uh, so he hired a bunch of state prisoners uh, to help hired. level. Yeah. Hired Hi air quotes, air quotes, air quotes um, to help level this ravine into more of a flat playing surface. Hence the flats. Uh, it was the low lying area next to the hill. Uh, students built uh, a, a grandstand over the years, uh, but for those first uh, about 10 years, Georgia Tech didn't actually play at the flats. Am I going to mm. keep going? Are you going to butt in? Mm. Are we going mm. to ride with this? No, no, no. no. This, is, this is like a, a New York Times true crime podcast where I just, mmm, and ah, there yes. to, to egg you on to keep talking. So uh, that first year, they, they did play some games there. But after that, uh, they, they kind of went out on the road again looking for bigger venues, which shockingly, apparently Piedmont maybe just had so much space around it that you could just kind of like exist there. Uh, but that was, that was a place, Active Oval on Piedmont Park. Um, not necessarily Active Oval per se, but you get the gist of what I'm going for, big open spaces um, also many home games at uh, Ponce de Leon Stadium, uh, formerly located across the street from Ponce de Leon Park. And this is what I'm going to call mayhem at Ponce de Leon because nothing old uh, is, or nothing new is old or whatever that Time is. Time is a flat circle. There we go, that one. Um, which I, uh, at, a, at a local establishment near Ponce City Market yesterday, looking out on the skyline, posited that if that park still existed and say the Braves played in a, in a renovated Ponce de Leon, that would be quite an interesting neighborhood on top of what it is already. Uh, but Georgia Tech did not play there forever, nor did their original host or 
home team, the Atlanta Crackers. They moved to Fulton County Stadium, uh, were replaced by the Braves, et cetera, et cetera. We all know what happened there. Vamoose, uh, by the 19 uh, war years, yeah, just rounded off at war years, uh, as John Heisman was building, as John Boyce quotes, uh, America's first, one of America's first great sporting dynasties and innovating game of football. Uh, they needed a stadium to match. Uh, home stands were built on the east and west sides. About 10 years later, the south end zone was bowled in. Uh, Georgia Tech had roughly, roughly, 60,000 seats in there at its peak, including the Upper East and Upper West, which were built in the 50s and 60s. Um, they debulled the South End Zone in the 80s. Uh, we already talked about turf. We've kind of switched back and forth a little bit on that. Um, yeah, 03 built the uh, Upper North. Uh, it came with skyboxes and more seats. And, and debt. more debt. Debt is yep. the key. Uh, that's an entirely other podcast. That we should do at some point. Certainly, say we we really need to dive into that one. That would be perfect for us. We talked a lot about other podcasts being the the right place to talk about certain things. This is the podcast to talk about that. Um, in the meantime, uh, there have been uh, a one-off Falcons game in the past. Uh, Peach Bowl, a couple uh, a couple Peach Bowls uh, in the early early days, uh, hosted uh, the WUSA's Atlanta Beat. Uh, a couple Atlanta United games. Uh, it's my personal opinion that we should host one of those a year, but no one asked me. And then, uh, yeah, now we have turf again. Uh, a little bit of a refresh going into the 2020 season, which I think looks great uh, for being the oldest stadium in in uh, FBS football. I think it's a miracle what a little bit of paint and some new posters and signage can do to make the stadium look. Quite frankly, quite frankly, I think it looks as good as it's probably looked since they finished the upper North right now. Yeah. Uh, I would add, I think there were two renovations in the early two thousands, one to build out the Plaza, uh, to build that Callaway Plaza. That might've been an Olympic era renovation. Uh, yes. And then they added the upper North in, in the Oh three renovation. So uh, a couple of time things there, uh, Bobby Dodd and Grant field have a pretty luxurious for Atlanta history of soccer. You touched on the beat and United United played half of its inaugural season in 2017 at on the flats uh, and the grass was impeccable. I cannot tell you how happy soccer players were with the grass at, at Bobby Dodd for that season. Uh, but importantly, you mentioned the beat uh, in 01, uh, they hosted the beat again, I think, at the second iteration of a women's soccer league uh, in 05-ish. Um, the third iteration, the NWSL doesn't have an Atlanta team yet. Hopefully that'll be that'll change in the next couple of years. Uh, I also do want to mention that they did host, if I remember my sourcing right, they hosted some end up, or NASL games back when Atlanta had a franchise for those, uh, when there were scheduling conflicts between the Braves and the Falcons. Uh, so that would be in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, I was going to well. say, I, I did touch on the Falcons. It's it's generally like old wives tale that like, yes, when the Falcons had conflicts at Fulton County. They would play at uh, Bobby Dodd. And I only found loose what? evidence for that happening one time. There's only one pro football yeah. reference record of it. And it's in yeah. like... 74 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. It, I think it was only because it was only because of the Braves in the playoffs, which yeah, did not happen. Run. 
did not happen ever yeah. for the yeah. until the nineties in terms of the Braves Atlanta history. But again, and, other and, podcasts. And by then, by then, uh, stadiums and and teams were much better about scheduling around that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of a story from the Metrodome for one time I went there, but again, that's a story for a different podcast. Um, we have a bye to... week. We have a bye week to talk about this at some point. I was say, if, if, if you want to hear us talk more about the history of Bobby Dodd Stadium, there's, there's plenty we didn't touch on. Um, but uh, seeing that being done, let's we can roll on to the actual team. Let's <laughs> pivot to talking about the program history. I think a lot of us know in general how the program is has been built you obviously have those early heisman years you have the four national titles you have uh a legend of bobby dodd but i i think there's some interesting tidbits here and there the one that i want to pull out because like i said everyone knows in general everyone listening to this in general knows that the history of the of the program the one that i want to pull out is would you say that the stretch of time from about 1963, well, let's say 1961 to 1968 was a program inflection point. In so a major program inflection point, insofar as the program's connection to the city of Atlanta. Dude, we could write a whole book about that. <laughs> we should. We should, but I want you to. Un- I want you to work undeniable fact. I think you. W- I want you to work with me and paint this picture. So, looking at the scene of college football in Atlanta in 1961, you have Georgia Tech, uh, arguably uh, the most successful program. Not no, inarguably the most successful football program in the state, let alone the city. Um, coming off a 1952 uh, pretty wider, mostly wide consensus uh, national title, it is claimed, but also uh, what is more often forgotten, 1951 and 1956, Georgia Tech can legitimately claim championships for those years. Uh, I believe I've argued pretty heavily in the past that they, they should do that. There's somebody said you're the, top, the champs, go take it, um, fight me. Um, but yes, you're looking at a Georgia Tech team that has arguably won three national titles in the last 10 years. Uh, completely, uh, the title to, for the SEC runs at least through or, or has some sort of consideration in being run through the city of Atlanta. Atlanta is the heart of the uh, growing post-war South in, in the era of air conditioning and, and personal automobiles. And you have a, a kind of two, two factors at work, right? There, there's always been the Georgia Tech is a, an icon of the, the new South, the industrial South, the growing transient, um, you know. It's the, not bit, the, 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 the scion of the Southland bit that yes. we named the podcast after is not just a bit, right? There was, there's some truth to that. Yes, exactly. And, and Georgia Tech has been at the forefront of the Atlanta on the rise kind of vibe, but you have the, the fact that, yes, the South can industrialize from the inside. Uh, Atlanta can be the, the pole star of the, the, the Birminghams, the Valdostas, the, you know, there's every, everywhere rural across the South. Like if you wanted to go see an urban place, Atlanta, it was the end all be all uh, by and large. 
And you have that at the same time, these factors, air conditioning, cars, opportunity, growth, um, the decline of the North, quite frankly, um, accelerating this change, right? This new South change. And as the demographic shifts, and, and there's so much you can say, whether it's professional, college, high school, uh, even the Olympics uh, in, a, in Atlanta, particular case, uh, and what those, uh, those demographic and cultural sociological effects have on sports. And then at the same time, you have a Georgia Tech that sees a conference, the SEC, that does not have the same clout as it does today. Right, and this is, a, this is also in an era where you don't have, one, there's not as much, mo- there's money in the sport, don't get me wrong, the sport has always been a business, but it's, there's not as much money as there is today, even by, even by inflationary standards. There's, there's more program head figures, right? There's more uh, coaches and athletic directors as deities. We saw that with Bear Bryant, we see that with, uh, with Bobby Dodd. Um, there's no... A conference in nineteen in the nineteen sixties, for lack of a better term, is more or less a loose confederation of teams that schedule each other occasionally. There's no official structure. There's no official schedule. Um, they are just they exist as a bargaining unit. And there's no, there's no. I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, there's no collective money in being in a conference. There's no dollars at this point at all, because this is 1961 is before is uh, six or seven years before the first Super Bowl. There's no there's a lot of TV. There's a lot of local TV money, but the NFL hasn't developed the idea of pooling together rights for TV. Uh, The NFL hasn't really been extensively on TV at this point. And so no one has really adopted that model wholesale. And the point. That, that I think is the, is the long goal here is Georgia Tech wasn't looking at the SEC as, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity. It is these people have rules set up that benefit themselves. We can play all of our traditional rivals anyway, no matter what we do. We're never going to touch Mississippi with a 10-foot pole. Rare is the day that we're going to, you know, go out to, to LSU or Florida the, or Kentucky, those further afield cities that, that don't have quite the same amount of appeal as, you know, your, your Nashville's, your, your close in UGA, uh, Bama, Tennessee, uh, Auburn type, type schools. So you, you really see a Georgia Tech that has massive success, is reliant on the, the ticket dollar so your, your, your primary revenue driver is going to be uh, filling your own stadium, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you see your conference not as, as something that's helping you compete, but actively detracting it in, in some, of the, some of the structural decisions they're making, right? So Georgia Tech saying, hey, we might be too good for this. It's not them turning down, like in, in the modern sense of the term, money or the historic, I, I think when a lot of people think of conferences, their, their default is the conference uh, in amateurism being the big 10, right? The, the, we're a collection of schools with, you know, institutional fit, institutional in, fit, not just institutional fit, but the, 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 no, no one had tech's educational profile outside of Vandy, maybe Tulane. It, it just wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't 
yeah, it wasn't an institutional fit and it wasn't uh, Georgia Tech seeing the SEC as, frankly, helping them compete in most sports. And, and keep in mind, this is in a time in which Georgia Tech may not have won every non-red sport or basketball or baseball that the SEC was ruled by Kentucky in basketball. And we can go down the list in the other sports, but rather as a lead weight that actively made it harder for them to compete and Georgia Tech for lack of, uh, for, for all of the, the, the short-sightedness of eventually leaving the SEC would be, there were no Falcons, there were no Braves, and Georgia Tech was led by a, a literal living legend. I mean, both uh, at the administrative and sporting levels, right? Edwin Harrison also has a bulk of the a bulk of the decision-making power here when it comes to leaving the, as president of Georgia Tech, he has a bulk of the decision-making power here to, to leave the SEC in 64. Here's, well, and, and I think the important caveat in that as well is there were other schools that saw Georgia Tech side, chiefly Tulane, uh, Vanderbilt, schools like that. But you also see Auburn, UGA, and, and to a lesser extent, Bama, coveting what Georgia Tech had in Atlanta, and kind of seeing the other side of that, right? The, the There's an opportunity if Georgia Tech leaves, let him. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to add to that, I think the two major issues we're talking about in 64 are really the major, major infrastructural issue is you're talking about the use of NCAA scholarships, right? Each program is given what? I think the number was 120 to distribute across all of its uh, all of its programs, all of its sports, 140, 140. Well, at that point, it's the same thing. Uh, it's you, you have 140 scholarships to distribute across all of your sports. What some teams in the SEC were doing, they were loading up using all 140 for football uh, well, and boosting the numbers. Right. The, the, there were some limitations to it, but the, the quote I can't remember if it's attributed directly to Bobby Dodd or uh, lore based was Alabama didn't have a great swim team, but that swim team could beat any other swim team in the conference in football. If you catch. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I I remember seeing that quote too. So you you have a lot of goosing these numbers. Yeah. Right. I, I think the second part that you're talking about uh, that you you've sort of alluded to is tech has had tech has had and in some cases continues to have a little bit of an ivory tower mentality both towards the city that it inhabits and also Mm -hmm. the context whether that's that it inhabits whether that's the sec in this case or um or or in general um i think one thing that tech did in the 60s that i've been i've read about occasionally is it while it was the preeminent football power in in the atlanta area obviously athens is going to be in the state right they're going to dominate the narrative of the state as the flagship school but in the atlanta metro area or what was the fledging atlanta metro area at the time georgia tech still had football power but it wasn't a it wasn't a like a working class fandom it was a it was a upper middle class. It was a middle class fandom. So it, it, a lot of these things fall along some very critical demographic lines. And as some of those people move in and out of the central parts of the city, you sort of lose that 
connection, that immediate connection to the program, right? And this, this was at the same time that Georgia Tech truly went national in the post-war era in terms of where its graduates wound up going, where it was drawing students from in the first place. At the time, it is worth noting that the concept of Georgia Tech as the Notre Dame of the South wasn't quite as far-fledged as that may seem today. Granted, I don't know if it's necessarily true or, or frankly possible to be both the MIT of the South and the Notre Dame of the South. Those two theme, themes seem fundamentally opposed, but at the same time, Georgia Tech went to fill the stadium with this move. Heck, in years that, in, in ages that only saw 11 regular season uh, football games, there were most years Georgia Tech was playing seven or even eight home games. And those games, Clemson, I don't think we went to Clemson for the first time uh, or it for any times between when we hired Heisman in 1904 and when we joined the ACC. So that was annual. You had Auburn in town every other year, rotating with Alabama. You had Tennessee in every other year with UGA in the opposing years. And you're filling up those extra slots with the USC's, SMU's, Notre Dame's of and the you're, world. And, and you're, what, packing, you're packing peak capacity Bobby Dodd Stadium. And at least for those first 10 years, you're getting exactly what you asked for. Maybe the product's not there on the field to support it long term. But short term, they probably thought they had – they probably thought along the lines of why haven't we done this years ago. And, and at the time, the idea of pro sports coming to the city is still a twinkle in the mayor's eye, right? Yep. When they make that move in 64, the Braves aren't threatening relocation. The Falcons haven't been involved in the NFL expansion process. Rankin Smith isn't involved in the, in the, in the relocation process or the expansion process yet. Um, and the Hawks are still in St. Louis and they haven't yep. hankered to relocate yet. So you're talking about a situation where the city is actively trying to court uh, pro sports teams. Like the A's were, I think it was either the A's or the white Sox that played game. Like they played an exhibition game in Atlanta. I think it was the A's actually, they played an exhibition game in Atlanta to, the, to test out what it would look like. And they ended up backing out of the deal at the last minute. I think um, it was the A's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you'd be able to tell me if it was the White Sox, uh, but uh, but so, so but there's no concrete plan to bring pro sports to to Atlanta at this time. So again, tech is the preeminent sports brand, but it's the preeminent sports brand of the middle, that upper middle class, that that newly forming, newly strengthening upper middle and middle class that Atlanta is developing through this new South uh, revitalization period. And then in 64, they leave the SEC, they try the Notre Dame of the South experiment, and that starts floundering. They, they still have the crowds, but it starts floundering. And then another entertainment option comes into the, comes into the civic arena, right, in terms of the Falcons, the Braves, and the, and the Hawks. Well, and, and you got to think about this in terms of two other things. You have a, uh, the, the exit of Edwin Harrison and the, the changeover of the school from a, this is an engineering school that also has some design and science courses to, hey, we're, we're trying to be this MIT, Stanford, Cal, 
ripoff or, or, or wannabe for lack of a better term. Look, look, MIT doesn't focus on it. They do fine. Caltech doesn't focus on sports. They do fine. Stanford, eh, Cal, that, that's a little bit different of a comparison, but <laughs> again, very different uh, athletic philosophy over on the West coast. And at the same time, not only do you have modern pro franchises in here, think about what the interstates do to revolutionize day-to-day travel you can get to Tuscaloosa for a football game. And, and at the time, Birmingham, which is where Auburn and Alabama played their games, Birmingham, you can leave Saturday morning and, and be there well in time for noon kickoff. And it's even more true for your Clemson's, Athens, the, the, the transportation revolution uh, works equally well for college football as it does for professional sports. Mm-hmm. So you, you really have a tech that for lack of a better term, saw its its main support vanish at the same time it became what is almost certainly the most insular and, and academic uh island uh, for for lack of a better way to put it midtown dies at the same time you can't you can't isolate that from uh, again we were talking about the transportation revolution but also at the same time the fact that tech grew inwards home park starts to, to decline at the same time tech's growing inwards and at the same time, wow, we're not appealing to Atlanta anymore. Huh, what's that all about? Mm-hmm. And so Tech made a bet, I mean, to summarize the, to summarize that period, so that 61 to 67-ish period, Tech made a bet on itself and it lost. It, it, yes. it's, it's unclear. I don't think you can put a number on how much it lost. I don't think there's a number in terms of revenue. I think you pulled up a season <laughs> ticket number at one point. Um, yeah, I've got a whole spreadsheet if you want me to pull that up. Oh, God. Um, if I remember correctly, the season ticket number loss was something in the realm of 20000 um, by the end of the decade. Uh, you're talking on a per annum basis or total? Uh, give me both. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling it up. You're going to have to vamp for a second. Well, I think the I think we're making a, a similar point, right? It tech bet on itself, not only and it lost, yeah, yeah. The tech bet on itself and lost, but it's not only that they lost because of the sporting context; they lost because of the demographic, the socio the the socioeconomic contest. They yep. they appealed to a specific type of individual that was living in Midtown Atlanta, that was living in the business center of Atlanta during the uh, during the sixties, and that type of individual ended up moving out of downtown and midtown Atlanta to the suburbs of Buckhead, Vining, Sandy Springs, further and further north during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, yeah. And if, they lost. They lost. If you look at um, Georgia Tech and the Falcons uh, season ticket numbers, it's kind of shocking that they're either inverted or both trending downwards. Like it's never... It's never that Georgia Tech and the Falcons are both going up at the same time, which which suggests to me that the the, the hypothesis is sound, right? Mm-hmm. It, as as your your middle upper uh, tech connected, for lack of a better way to put it, class is moving to the suburbs and becoming less associated with the city, with the school, and, and at the same time as you're drawing, the student body's not growing like it did to today until the, you know, the eighties and the nineties. Right. So you're, you're seeing that connection that, Oh, my granddad went to tech. 
kind of evaporate just because your your exposure is that much smaller for for all of the 70s except for uh 74 75 76 and then all of the 80s except 83 and 88 the falcons wildly outdrew georgia tech and these are not good falcons teams no they're awful they're awful 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 falcons teams they were awful until the 90s Yep. They were still awful in the 90s too. They had they had 98 in one other year. They were still awful. Yeah. The uh it, it's very it's very interesting. I think again, we could go on we have many, been going on many for 25 more hours minutes at this point about this. But it, but at the end of the day, there's a reason I, I think we can tie this into modern day saying that at least the branding appeal as sticky as it can be is somewhat necessary because we yeah. can say Georgia tech now isn't as insular, but how much of that, like us being in midtown and us being in home park is drawing in new, new fans and new exposure rather than Georgia tech is just so big and it's going to, to midtown and home park. How and, much and, of that is being successful and drawing in new fans. Cause like, I don't and know. Also, that's true. And also a lot of that growth and that actual connection to the city comes from initiatives that Georgia Tech purposefully took with the city starting around the 90s when the Olympics were coming up. There were uh, a lot of Georgia Tech grad students and design students and professors involved with civic planning and urban planning and architecture and a lot of the projects that were spawned out of the Olympics so you have that public-private, well, public-public partnership in this case, and that extends out to Tech Square, the Fifth Street Bridge, all of these processes, all of these uh, initiatives that the city and Midtown, Midtown Alliance and the city of Atlanta and Georgia Tech took together to revitalize Midtown and also make Tech more of a civic institution, a city connection a city partnership institution at the the same time you we can we can go on about how great it is that ryan gravel wrote his beltline thesis and how that's changing atlanta in great ways but people aren't becoming georgia tech fans because some elected official or some public private partnership or, or whatever at the end of the day i think like georgia tech is never going to exist in a world of the 60s again Mm-hmm. And the fact that they had the opportunity potentially, and we saw how it went just because of one bad or two bad or however many unsuccessful coaching hires or even mediocre, like not, not bad, just not that good or, or what they had been either in a time that the city was changing rapidly. You went from where you can be the, I guess for lack of a better example, immediately off the top of my head, where you can be the uh, Green Bay Packers of Green Bay. Or the, I guess, like, you know, what Missouri is to Columbia or, or, or you know, that medium-sized city life or, or experience Texas Tech to Lubbock. That's probably the best example off the top of my head. Where that is their modern reality, that is what Georgia Tech kind of represented in 1950, 1960. Mm-hmm. And instead, you live in the world now that Northwestern has always lived in. Right. Or that pit has oh, always lived in. God, or, why did you have to make this a Chicago thing? Or, or oh. Vanderbilt. 
Like Vanderbilt is now in the same situation that Georgia Tech is in at infinitum, right? Like, because there is all of these transplants coming in at any given moment. It's true in Chicago these days. It's true in Los Angeles these days. It's true for, yeah, for uh, UNLV or Arizona State or heck, even the Bay Area schools, right? So there, and as college has exploded and and, uh, the, the amount of people that go to a D1 school and have that kind of affiliation, and then are moving, you you lose that base of that, you know, pretty pretty educated or well off well off fan that has historically been more of a free agent, if you will, on the fan. Disposable market. income, disposable yes. income uh, is undefeated, as we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we we really went down the rabbit hole on that. And- we spent like a good twenty five minutes on this. Uh, we should move on. Yeah, I think it was a good discussion, but we should move on. Um, you'd like to hear more let us know because we like talking about this stuff so god we do like talking about this stuff hey guys this is akshay checking in from the editing booth we ended up splitting this into a two-parter so if you're interested in hearing a schedule preview and a conference preview go ahead and click over to part two or episode 82 in your podcatcher now otherwise uh you know thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next week